0: Johnson is called good talk. In order to have, like Dr. Johnson, a good talk, it is emphatically necessary to be, like Dr. Johnson, a good man, to have friendship and honor and an abysmal tenderness. Above all, it is necessary to be openly and indecently humane, to confess with fullness all the primary pities and fears of Adam. Johnson was a clear-headed, humorous man, and therefore he did not mind talking seriously about religion. Johnson was a brave man, one of the bravest that ever walked, and therefore he did not mind avowing to anyone his consuming fear of death. The idea that there is something English in the repression of one's feelings is one of those ideas which no Englishman ever heard of until England began to be governed exclusively by Scotchmen, Americans, and Jews at the best the idea is a generalization from the duke of wellington who was an irishman at the worst it is a part of that silly teutonism which knows as little about england as it does about anthropology but which is always talking about vikings as a matter of fact the vikings did not repress their feelings in the least they cried like babies and kissed each other like girls in short they acted in that respect like achilles and all strong heroes the children of the gods and though the english nationality has probably not much more to do with the vikings than the french nationality or the irish nationality the english have certainly been the children of the vikings in the matter of tears and kisses it is not merely true that all the most typically english men of letters like shakespeare and dickens richardson and thackeray were sentimentalists it is also true that all the most typically english men of action were sentimentalists if possible more sentimental in the great elizabethan age when the english nation was finally being hammered out in the great eighteenth century when the british empire was being built up everywhere where in all these times where was this symbolic stoical englishman who dresses in drab and black and represses his feelings were all the Elizabethan paladins and pirates like that? Were any of them like that? Was Grenville concealing his emotions when he broke wine-glasses to pieces with his teeth and bit them till the blood poured down? Was Essex restraining his excitement when he threw his hat into the sea? Did Raleigh think it sensible to answer the Spanish guns only, as Stevenson says, with a flourish of insulting trumpets? Did Sidney ever miss an opportunity of making a theatrical remark in the whole course of his life and death? Were even the Puritans Stoics? The English Puritans repressed a good deal, but even they were too English to repress their feelings. It was by a great miracle of genius, assuredly, that Carlyle contrived to admire simultaneously two things so irreconcilably opposed as Silence and Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell was the very reverse of a strong, silent man. Cromwell was always talking when he was not crying. Nobody, I suppose, will accuse the author of grace abounding of being ashamed of his feelings. Milton, indeed, it might be possible to represent as a Stoic, in some sense he was a Stoic, just as he was a prig and a polygamist and several other unpleasant and heathen things but when we have passed that great and desolate name which may really be counted an exception we find the trade of english emotionalism immediately resumed and unbroken continuous whatever may have been the moral beauty of the passions of etheridge and dorset sedley and buckingham they cannot be accused of the fault of fastidiously concealing them charles the second was very popular with the english because like all the jolly english kings He displayed his passions. William the Dutchman was very unpopular with the English because, not being an Englishman, he did hide his emotions. He was, in fact, precisely the ideal Englishman of our modern theory, and precisely for that reason all the real Englishmen loathed him like leprosy. With the rise of the great England of the eighteenth century, we find this open and emotional tone still maintained in letters and politics in arts and in arms. Perhaps the only quality which was possessed in common by the great Fielding and the great Richardson, was that neither of them hid their feelings. Swift, indeed, was hard and logical, because Swift was Irish. And when we passed to the soldiers and the rulers, the patriots and the empire-builders of the eighteenth century, we find, as I have said, that they were, if possible, more romantic than the romancers, more poetical than the poets chatham who showed the world all his strength showed the house of common all his weakness Wolfe walked about the room with a drawn sword calling himself caesar and hannibal and went to death with poetry in his mouth clive was a man of the same type as cromwell or bunyan or for the matter of that johnson that is he was a strong sensible man with a kind of running spring of hysteria and melancholy in him. Like Johnson, he was all the more healthy, because he was morbid. The tales of the admirals and adventures of that England are full of brigadagio, of sentimentality, of splendid affection. But it is scarcely necessary to multiply examples of the essentially romantic Englishman, when one example towers above them all. Mr. Rudyard Kipling... "'has said complacently of the English, "'We do not fall on the neck and kiss when we come together. "'It is true that this ancient and universal custom has vanished "'with some modern weakening of England. "'Sydney would have thought nothing of kissing Spencer, "'but I willingly concede that Mr. Broderick "'would not be likely to kiss Mr. Arnold Foster, "'if that be any proof of the increased manliness "'and military greatness of England. "'But the Englishman who does not show his feelings,' has not altogether given up the power of seeing something English in the great sea hero of the Napoleonic War. You cannot break the legend of Nelson, and across the sunset of that glory is written in flaming letters forever the great English sentiment. Kiss me, Hardy." This ideal of self-repression, then, is, whatever else it is, not English. It is, perhaps, somewhat oriental. It is slightly Prussian. But in the main it does not come, I think, from any racial or national source. It is, as I have said in some sense, aristocratic. It comes not from a people, but from a class. Even the aristocracy, I think, was not quite so stoical in the days when it was really strong. But whether this unemotional ideal be the genuine tradition of the gentleman, or only one of the inventions of the modern gentleman, who may be called the decayed gentleman, it certainly has something to do with the unemotional quality of these society novels. From representing aristocrats as people who suppress their feelings, it has been an easy step to representing aristocrats as people who had no feelings to suppress. Thus the modern oligarchist has made a virtue for the oligarchy of the hardness as well as the brightness of the diamond. Like a sonneteer addressing his lady in the 17th century, he seems to use the word cold, almost as a eulogium, and the word heartless, as a kind of compliment. Of course, in people so incurably kind-hearted and babyish, as are the English gentry, it would be impossible to create anything that can be called positive cruelty. So in these books they exhibit a sort of negative cruelty. They cannot be cruel in acts, but they can be so in words. All this means one thing, and one thing only. It means that the living and invigorating ideals of England must be looked for in the masses. It must be looked for where Dickens found it. Dickens, among whose glories it was to be a humorist, to be a sentimentalist, to be an optimist, to be a poor man, to be an Englishman, but the greatest of whose glories was that he saw all mankind in its amazing and tropical luxuriance and did not even notice the aristocracy Dickens the greatest of whose glories was that he could not describe a gentleman End of chapter fifteen